Presented by The Hockey Shop, sourced for sports Surrey and thehockeyshop.com. This is In Goal Radio, the podcast where goalies come for the latest from around the crease and coaches and parents and players just simply eavesdrop as a way to try and understand this world a little bit more. I'm Darren Millard, and this is episode 10, spending the first significant podcast time on the Vaughn brand as the SLR2 line is the focus of the gear segment. Plus, things are going to get real in a real hurry with our feature interview, In Goal Radio, spending some time with Clint Malarchuk, who talks about his career, the injury, his attempted suicide, while seamlessly weaving in some great stories from his time in and around the game as we bring in the co-founders of In Goal, the esteemed Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison. Esteemed may be a bit of a stretch, but it makes you guys sound both uh, very, very smart. Just for Hutch, Kevin. Hutch, you're shaking your head. I can see you shaking your head. Just just, just for Kevin. It's fine. I'll take it. I'll oh, the face of the franchise. <laughs> I learned that, that, that Woody's the face of the franchise. Yeah, you're... <laughs> Only because people have never seen my face. And you're the voice of the franchise. I don't know what that leaves me, but I'm happy to be here. Uh, The brains. The brains. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Uh, Both of us are right on on cue. Hey, guys, we we have a new superstar on the horizon. And, uh, and, Woody, it's El- it's Elvis, and and it's not Elvis Presley, but but Elvis, and you say his last name because I'm I'm still getting to know this guy. He's the newest uh, signee of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Elvis Merzlikens, who is coming from the Swiss League Lugano, where he worked with uh, Canadian based or Canadian born uh, goaltending coach Michael Lawrence for the past few years. And you're right, he just signed his contract with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Happened to do a conference call uh, while the Jackets were in Vancouver the other day, so that meant I got to sit in on it. And if you're not familiar with his story, you will be soon. If you're not familiar with his personality, you will be soon because it is big, he is good, and it could be, you know, like between those two things, um, the, the future is bright for the Blue Jackets and Elvis Merzlikens. His his Instagram is awesome because he does a few different things and his pregame like uh, let's get ready to go with his defenseman is cool. There's there's all kinds of stuff on his on his Instagram account, but this is just a sample of what Kevin was talking about the conference call that took place with the media upon uh, Elvis signing his uh, his contract with the Columbus Blue Jackets. He covered a whole lot of stuff, including a run-in at the World Championships last year where the opposition uh, kind of got into his grill a little bit, and this was his reply. Just a little sample of his conference call. So that game, I had to, to cheat. I had to be smarter. Uh, I remember little little slash when I got on catcher, I was start, start screaming, and of course the referees were my friends, and I got two minutes, like they got two minutes. So at least they give power play for my team a little chance to score. Uh, of course, we did nothing that special, but uh, anyway, so we put in danger to team. Uh, then I did another time the same thing, and then uh, I don't remember who was the player. He wanted to fight with me. I said, all right, if you want to go, let's go, but not now because I can't go now. I mean, if I'm going to leave, then the other goalie has to come in, and then we're going to probably not just because I'm leaving, losing, but... It's not easy to get in the game right away, right? All right. So, uh, Hutch, what are the chances we can, we've got the in-goal backup towel go on, in-goal T-shirts with the Elvis quote on it? Yeah, actually, we had some conversations this week with the Hockey Shop about getting that backup towel going. So uh, look for it at HockeyShop.com coming soon, folks. Um, I think I would love a T-shirt that says, you want to go? Let's go, but not now or we'll lose. 
I think maybe we modify that or I'll lose. I like it. I like it. Woody, Woody wouldn't be saying, uh, you want to go uh, maybe later because we'll lose. Woody, you just go, right? How did I get the reputation as the snaptastic one in this group, man? I am you like, called yourself I, that. Yeah. Self-appointed. Self-appointed. One episode where I wasn't able to have coffee before we started, and like my reputation is totally sullied. I, I, I've, uh, I've heard a few stories from the uh, the Surrey Beer Leagues. Yeah, it's it's out there. I, by the way, stick tap to you guys both. Uh, I was at an AHL rink the other day, doing something else for the chirp, and the goalie coach uh, of the home team passed on hellos and congratulations on this podcast. I won't mention his name because I I. Should have thought of it, but uh, I didn't get approval to, to relay and share a conversation. But In Goal Radio has opened up the goaltending discussion portals, and it's been fun. And, and uh, this person uh, was uh, was really appreciative of what uh, what you guys have started here. Well, it's good to hear, and I think that's a perfect time to remind people that it probably wouldn't be possible without our friends at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey. Um, I'm lucky enough. All my gear needs are right here in my backyard in the lower mainland at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports. I get to go in there, go into the basement. They got an entire level dedicated exclusively to goaltending. Uh, An entire staff on that level that all play the position, understand the position, can help you play the position better by having the right gear that suits your needs. But of course, not everybody is able to visit in person, although I'd recommend maybe vacations planned around a trip to Vancouver. My backyard, beautiful city, NHL draft coming this summer, and the best hockey shop in the country. Make sure you check it out. But if you can't, no problem. Thehockeyshop.com for all your needs. We've actually gotten some feedback from listeners who have discovered them uh, through the podcast, reached out to them for their gear orders, and ended up on the phone or in emails talking with the staff. Guys like Cam, who we'll hear in a little in a couple minutes talking about the SLR2. Guys like Dawson, who do a lot of work behind the scenes on the online orders. And they've discovered what I already know. When you call them, when you're making orders, whether it's custom or just a stock item off the rack, you can talk to guys who play a position, understand the position, know how gear performs, what style, what preferences fits what's ge- what gear, and help you get the right order. So if you're in town, make sure you check out the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey, BC. If you can only get it online, it's thehockeyshop.com. And obviously, we're going to talk to Cam. I was there in person to talk about the SLR2 line. Uh, you can check out their review on that as well. For all your needs for goaltenders, make sure you check out the Hockey Shop. Best part about that whole read is, is it's off the top of your head. That's yeah, the amazing part. I can't rem- I can't pronounce Cam's last name without looking it up, but I can get it, that whole thing done. It's funny you bring up uh, planning a vacation around it, and I, I used to do that when my family would go on vacation. We'd go into Winnipeg for for a week or camping. I would make my family go to the uh, the local uh, sporting goods store. Uh, so gear time, uh, and I wanted to let you guys know I I, I was an early adapter of on uh, the second glove I ever bought was from. Uh, running racket in the mall and Brandon was a Vaughn. My first white pads were Vaughn, which was the old, uh, uh, who was Ron Tugnut, Quebec Nordiques, that, uh, th- those, those kind of pads. And my current mitts are Vaughn after being away. So uh, the latest, uh, line from Vaughn is the focus of our gear segment with Woody brought to you by the hockey shop source for sports, Surrey and the hockey shop.com Woody. Yeah. And we've got an appearance in this one, uh, by Thomas Grice. All right, welcome back to the Hockey Shop, Source for Sports here in Surrey with Cam Matwiv, your goaltending expert from down in the basement. And today we're going to talk 
about the Vaughn SLR2 Pro Carbon, both the leg pad, the gloves, the blockers. Uh, we haven't had a chance to test this line. I know the SLR1 line was two years ago. Vaughn's not a product that we get sent to do testing on, unfortunately. So I'm going to rely on you, Cam. Tell me what that line, What? let's start with the pads, what the SLR1 was all about, what type of goaltender it was for, and what improvements we're seeing in the SLR2 line. So the original SLR continuation on Vaughn's Ventus idea, we'll call it. So, you know, we first saw Vaughn move to what was, you know, a, a departure, a stiff pad when their first LT90 pad, and then the 98 continuing on the design. And then when the SLR uh, first came out, so that was their first rendition of it, um, you know, they really changed up the profile of the pad, and that's when they really hit the stride with what the goalie, you know, that would play a little bit more of that blocking style would want in the pad itself i mean their big features especially that uh, rotational strap um, on the inside of the calf is really blown up and you see that almost everywhere um, now that was one of their big things that got highlighted with that first slr pad and that was in that was of course uh kind of an extension of the professor strap ben scrivens the first time we saw in the nhl kind of break that out i remember talking to him about it and like you said fawn did a nice idea of sort of evolving that strapping to the point where a lot of other companies have had to follow suit and um, you know they've innovated uh, on that strap in particular some of the features so so this is a pad that's designed to be you know, a little stiffer and therefore in theory worn a little looser but it sounds like that doesn't necessarily have to be the case with some of these new features when we talk about the leg channel of the SLR2 pad one of the things that we found out, you know, with fitting guys in the SLR and now what will be the SLR Pro 2 is that there there is a, a group of goalies that want that tight fitting pad still, even though they want the pad to be stiffer, which is usually kind of the, you know, almost opposite way of, of the, the generational thinking, right? It's a little counterintuitive. My hips hurt just thinking in those terms. But with this rotational strap, they've really made the best of both worlds because you can wear the bottom of the pad a little bit looser, but have that rotation strap really really bring your calf and your shin right up against the pad but still have that bottom area be loose to allow your skate to drop out and not you know put that extra stress on your hips so more of an open leg channel compared to say their other line way more open than a v8 right but still with a, that element of connectivity for lack of a better term between the leg and the pad nice balance between those two that sounds sounds about right i, I like the word connectivity that works okay now the changes in the slr2 we're seeing as much as the leg channel still open some evolution in the wrap uh and the calf wrap particularly the inside edge and how it extends and wraps over the calf yeah so especially at, at the top there it, it kind of connects over and fully actually almost touches the other side of the of the leg channel really makes a difference in terms of again for that little bit of connectivity on the top or part of the calf it, it complements the the rotation strap for sure um on the inside there yeah and you got now just a reminder to everyone you guys have actually had this pad on the ice done a little testing and of course if people want to read that review what we love about the hockey shop is they're the first ones typically that get it on the ice and get a review up and they've had it up for a while now if you go to thehockeyshop.com you can actually read the full review of what they're you know kind of grab some pictures and see what we're talking about in person and kind of match what we're saying to what it looks like with that strap. Um, the other change in the, the, they call it the reactive rotational control strapping, is it's now removable in the SLR2, wasn't in the SLR1. What's the benefit there? Not, not, not for everyone? 
Uh, not necessarily. It's not for everyone. Like, yeah, you know, if if you all of a sudden really hate it, now you do have the ability to, to take it out. As there were a few guys that didn't like it and decided to go otherwise. That said, they've added a, a two more actual holes, so you can lace it up or down just a little bit, so you can really kind of dial in exactly where you want it to sit on your calf. I mean, talk about my own experience when I tried the SLR one. It sat right on the top head of my calf and I would have wanted to sit a little bit higher actually and having this adjustability for me it would all it would make all the difference in the way that pad fits and using that rotation strap for sure so more adjustability within the strap and, and again like you said full credit to Vaughn for so, sort of evolving that strap from that original professor strap to something that it sounds like even guys who aren't used to it will be able to sort of fidget with it and get it to work for them it polished and refined definitely Perfect. Now, new new toe system, new bungee, some adjustability there. We've seen other companies go to that sort of bungee type system with a Velcro attachment over this over top of the skate. Um, Vaughn's taken that to another level with with a new sort of adjustment. Yeah, they're using uh, like a plastic clip adjustment, a little bit different. But the one thing that uh, I thought was really nice is that they've actually made this, the bungee straps extra long, which gives you more ability to adjust it once you have it yourself. You, you know, you can't always add lace, but you can take lace away once you find your perfect fit. And that's kind of what they went for with this. Okay, perfect. Other couple things, couple couple callouts on this product. Uh, the pad in particular, starting with the pad. Uh, I noticed that the outer roll quite a bit thinner. We saw this with Brian's in the optic line. Um, didn't hear, you know. I'll be honest. When we first tested the optic and saw that really thinned out outer roll, uh, obviously it cuts weight. Uh, obviously, it creates a thinner profile visually on the pad. Quite quite attractive for goalies that like that. Um, but my original concerns testing it were like, hey the outer roll on pucks in tight that get chipped, like it kind of helps knock them down and thinning this out. Are some of those pucks going to hit this thinner outer roll and maybe roll over and end up in the net? And I know talking to some of the NHL guys that tested that, they had that concern as well. As we tested it, I didn't really experience that. Neither did any of our testers in the optics. So, you know, if that's what you're looking at when you see this thinner outer roll in the SLR2, probably not as much a concern as maybe some old school guys might think. I, I would, uh, again, I almost echo exactly what you just said there at the end. I didn't notice that at all when we were taking shots. Again, you know, even feedback from Jono, who wrote the uh, vlog, he didn't notice that at all. I mean, his biggest thing was with that thinned out outer roll is that he found he could seal up in his uh, reverse VH a little bit better on the post because he didn't have the outer roll pushing his pad away from the post. So that would be probably another one of the bigger benefits, I would say, with a thinned out outer roll is allowing you to get that better seal against the post for sure in your reverse VH. Now, another new technology and, and something that we've heard a fair bit from uh, that also might, you know, I mean, in my opinion, have a little bit of Brian's undertone to it. The two companies are linked from an ownership standpoint, but uh, Vaughn calls it their quick side technology. It looks an awful lot like the Primo to me. Uh, they do say they've put another layer on it. Bottom line, whether it's borrowed or new, is, and I've heard this from NHL goalies, and we'll play a clip in a minute from Thomas Grice talking about it. He's not actually in an SLR2, I don't believe. It's more like the VEA, the softer pad. But he put that inner, that 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 quick slide on the inside and noticed a huge difference. And it sounds like you guys did too. Yeah, so far, uh, feedback, you know, we can reference, uh, again, Brian's uh, Primo material as it is very similar. Um, you know, immediately we had guys notice a difference in terms of their sliding and their feel and their buildup of, uh, you know, snow in the crease and still being able to push, you know, the same way they did in the first period, for example. I think having this translate onto their pad 
not only their pro custom pad that you would find domestic, but also their midline series, their offshore series. Um, you're going to find that all the way down to the youth pad. It's, it's a real fantastic upgrade that they've added throughout the lineup. Um, definitely worth highlighting and calling out for sure. And that's a trend we've seen in other lines, right? We talked about the E-Flex 4 just a couple of weeks ago. CCM with their speed skin. Again, material that has less friction against the ice, including when it starts to get chopped up and is going to slide better. A trend that, you know, frankly, we talk about giving Vaughn credit for the rotational strap and the professor strap. Uh, I give credit to Bauer. I believe they're the ones that started that. Material on the inside edge that makes it, it slide faster, slide easier, um, require less energy to push and get the same distance. And credit to Vaughn, they've they've followed that trend here with the clicks, quick slide. And we'll hear from, like I said, we'll, we'll hear from Thomas Grice now and his experiences with it. Big difference, it's way faster. Yeah, like going down, sliding, everything. It's so much easier to slide. Did you have to adjust? Like, did you, like a lot of guys when they go to yeah. something that slides better, it's like, oh man, my. Well, push. you know, like it feels different the first one or two practices, but then you just get used to it and it comes natural again, and you don't really feel it anymore. Yeah. Just feels nice. It's just way faster. Yeah, yeah. and that always helps. In yeah, this game. especially like going down, sliding. It's not that big a difference, you know. Like, but going down helps to fight for for an old man. So there it is, the SLR2 with the new quick slide technology. Uh, it's got the reactive rotational control strap we talked about, a little bit of an overlap in the upper calf wrap for a little more connectivity, but still that that stiffer profile pad um, that, you know, a quote-unquote, for lack of a better term, more of a butterfly stiff pad guy might like. Don't forget the improved core of the pad too as well. Um, it is a full sheet of carbon in the front face of the pad, but they've also added a little bit more in the upper thigh rise of the pad to again stiffen that up a little bit more as uh, to provide some more structure to the pad versus the first SLR for sure. Right, and, and, and again, not everyone, like especially Vaughn traditionalists, this might not be the pad for you. Like if you want a soft pad, when you hear about carbon fiber and stiffening it up, this probably isn't the model for you, right? That's more, if you're in that, you're probably looking at a... The V8, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and I like the fact that the lines are distinct. Like, I credit for that. Different goalies have different preferences. As much as it sounds like SLR2 um, has been sort of adjusted and evolved so that if you like a tighter fit, it'll still work for you. If you want a soft, flexible pad, this probably isn't the model for you. Correct. Okay, now let's move to the gloves and the blocker real quick. Um, what are some of the key differences? Does it sound like cuff is a big difference in the SLR2? Yeah, so with Vaughn, they have actually two versions of the SLR2 Trapper. So you'll find just the SLR Pro, uh, and then it's going to be SLR Pro ST. Um, so ST is actually um, a, a different line creating a single-piece cuff as opposed to a two-piece cuff. So a little bit better for blocking service, a little bit more uh, rigid especially. Um to be honest, a little bit more in tune with what the line breathes in terms of style of play. Um, really, really notice it once you have it on your hand. It, it honestly makes the glove just feel better balanced and a better feel to it, for sure. Now, in terms of stocking this model, I mean, here at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports, have you ordered, because obviously if, if people can custom order the different model, what what's going to be on the wall for you guys? My guess is the one-piece cuff, the ST. Your guess is correct, 100%. After looking at the two, like we've kind of made a collective decision myself and the rest of the guys and we just decided to go with a single piece cuff as opposed to the two piece it's, it's a good advancement I'm, I'm you know we don't need to see another two piece cuff uh from vaughn it's time to move to onto a single piece so that's what we've got on the wall and if you want a custom order though obviously that's going to be one of the things that you can order is is the one piece or sorry the two piece cuff 
Um, you know, again, there are still some out there that prefer that sort of traditional feel right up to the NHL. Few and far between now, but there are a couple. Other features on the glove and blocker you want to hit? Um, in particular, just calling out the way like it hasn't changed too, too far from the original SLR, but they have opened up the pocket a little bit more, made it a real catch style of a glove um you know we're, we're talking about you know a single piece puff and improving blocking surface but that's not necessarily what the glove is completely designed for um, it is a very wide open catch the glove seals up very nicely now they've added two uh better uh palm protectors they call it their shock shield technology in particular again just trying to reduce that energy transfer to your hand and you know reduce those stingers um overall i believe the glove's a great improvement and, and it looks fantastic break what kind of how does it break on the hand more first baseman fingertip to thumb or a little more into the palm it, it still kind of finds itself somewhere on that in between it's it's kind of hard it feels to me like a little bit more of that fingertip to uh thumb like a 5500 to go in traditional vaughn speak or not quite that far the problem with vaughn is that you have that it's always kind of feels a little bit like a 5500 but it's not quite a 5500 right there's that sort of it's such a wide range over the years from them that's it's, it's not a common language from one break to the other. So I guess my recommendation would be get down to the hockey shop, put one on your hand, be one of those annoying guys like me that tries every glove on the wall, snaps it open and close. Sounds like it opens and closes nicely out of the box. You do have a great closure out of the box. Yeah, give it a sample and try. Now the blocker, what's what's changed on the blocker, if anything? So again, probably one of the least exciting pieces of equipment that we ever talk about on this show, but um, the, the blocker itself, just again, a bit more of an improvement on design. They haven't made the angle as steep in terms of the deflection plate, so they flattened it out a little bit more. Better control in terms of placing your rebounds, that's what their, their thought process is behind it. Um, other than that it's still following that same ventus line of blockers which has been you know a little bit more stiffer on the sidewall um the front face has a good punch to it especially for rebounds coming off whereas you know your velocity blocker the sidewall is a little bit more flexible so those are kind of your two differences between the two blockers now i mentioned custom orders and your ability to order a two-piece cuff still um, you can take custom orders at the hockey shop source for sports and the hockey shop.com already on this product um sounds like Shipping is roughly or orders are roughly 14 weeks on custom for Vaughn right now. Uh, you guys expect to have your models up and on the wall roughly end of the first week of April, early second week in April for those who can come in and check it out in person. And in the meantime, SLR2 means SLR1 is on sale at thehockeyshop.com. That's correct. I mean, you can check all that out, obviously, on the website. But uh, I know we got a couple pads left over, especially in the Pro Carbon model, and then uh, a couple gloves left over as well. So they're a great price for a great product to still pick up if you don't care about the new stuff. Perfect. Now, Cam, thank you very much for your time today. Make sure you go check out, like I said, all the new and the old and the first reviews of the new at thehockeyshop.com. Awesome. Thanks, Cam. Throwing to a clip in the gear segment, uh, Woody's uh, elevating his game here. One one thing I, I just was curious about when when Thomas Grice is talking about being faster going down, and we're talking about slide. W- can you take me through that? What's the sliding process? And and I think of that going side to side, but he's talking about being faster going down into the butterfly. I think what he means is he just finds them faster, like going down into a butterfly slide. So standing from your skates and pushing down into a slide versus at the beginning, I think he he was talking more in terms of already being on your knees and doing a recovery slide. He's talking about transitioning into a butterfly slide from a stand-up position. And, you know, Greisers, we've talked about it, right? The old school with the stand-up saves and the shootout last week and all that kind of stuff. Like there's a guy that spends a lot more time 
time on his skates than on his knees. Um, when he does go down, it's usually not in a straight drop, right? It's in a transition into a slide. And so I think that's why that's why he talked about it in those terms. He definitely noticed the difference. Though, and it's interesting, you know, we talked about it, it, it clearly looks and feels like like Brian's Opti slide. Uh, their primo material that they put on, starting with the optic pad that we tested last year and had really good response to. And as we're having this conversation with Thomas, Robin Laner's right next to us, and that's where the inspiration for Thomas to try it came from. Laner has Brian's optic slide on his Brian's pads, and in their discussions back and forth, Thomas is looking at it and he's like, "I got, I got to try it," and then that's how he ended up wearing it. And you know, there's definitely, I don't think there's any shame in saying there's similarities there. It's good on Bond for making sure they, you know, like a lot of companies have, have seen this as something they need in their pads, and, and now Vaughn has it too. The shock zone also. Uh, CCM, I have a glove that uh, I thought was a practice glove because it had all that extra padding and right right in the palm, and it jumps out at you, but that's just an extra layer for for a game glove now that uh, Hutch that, that that we're seeing in, in most equipment lines. Well, I assume you're referring to the D3O in the palm of the... Uh... Yeah in the palm of the, the CCM glove. And we've heard from uh, NHL goalie coaches, American League goalie coaches. I'm thinking of one in the American League right now specifically who who said he's actually uh, asking his goaltenders to use the CCM game-ready glove, uh, that extra layer of D3O providing enough protection, but he wants them to have enough feel for the puck and not use those large unclosing gloves that a lot of guys are choosing to use. Well, those are the practice gloves, right? Like the old yeah. school used to have the practice gloves and it was double layers yeah. of felt. And yeah. I think what we've seen with companies like CCM introducing D3O is now you can have the same level of protection without needing to make it triple thick, right? And so practice gloves, some goalie coaches didn't like them because they, frankly, they didn't close. And in an unrelated note... Yeah, Bill Ranford was was on the record with that, with our conversation. Right, yeah, yeah, good good recall there. And, and I think a lot of people, like Henrik Lundqvist, they talk about his glove not closing and it being the big flat pancake and it presents so open. That actually started with him trying a practice glove for the first time, and he couldn't close it, and he liked how it presented. So there are benefits to practice gloves. Everyone is different. That's what we love about goaltending. But certainly the trend is we're seeing less practice-specific gloves in the NHL, especially in that CCM line where guys feel like that D3O layer is, is enough. They don't need any more than that. One little side note, I don't have an answer to it yet, but I'm going to find out. I noticed late last night, Sergei Bobrovsky, and we are going to have him answer a listener question later in the episode. But one thing I noticed is I was looking at his gloves last night on the rack and didn't have a chance to ask. There was a practice tag on a blocker. So I'm going to get the answer to that, why he has a quote-unquote practice blocker this week. Never seen that before. Me neither. No. Uh, before we get to the listener question, we turn our attention to the In Goal Radio feature interview, and we've got blunt honesty here. This is a conversation that shouldn't have happened. Clint Malarczyk should be dead. Somehow, though, for reasons that can't be explained, he managed to reject that Grim Reaper on two different occasions. Uh, try putting that in a business card alongside NHL goaltender, NHL goalie coach, a person who's battled OCD, who defaults to self-deprecating humor. Oh, and uh, also wrote a book called The Crazy Game. Woody and Hutch caught up with Clint, learning the conversation would take place on the 30th anniversary of the moment that a skate sliced open Malarczyk's neck in one of the most gruesome injuries ever captured. A laceration that, in Clint's journey, 
has ended up being just one of many chapters. Here is Clint with David and Kevin. He's an author. He's the world's first horse dentist, because I can't say equine. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Slash goalie consultant. Played in the NHL. Coached in the NHL. Um, has written a book. Is a mental health advocate. And we're talking to him on, not planned, but it just turned out this way. The 30th anniversary of an incident that I think a lot of people maybe who outside the game that don't know all those other things will remember. Um that night in Buffalo, Clint Malarchuk, how are you doing 30 years to the day um, after that shocking, horrific incident took place on the ice? Well, I wasn't a very good goalie, so at least uh, people remember me for something. Right? Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, well, I, was, I, I had a decent career. I wasn't like, you know, I made the all-star team one time. Uh, you know, I was just a, I was just a hardworking guy. I didn't really believe in my talents a lot. So I, I thought I had to outwork everybody. And so for me, it was, you know, just making it to the NHL was a huge accomplishment on the 30th anniversary. Well, I'll be honest with you, your body, mind, and your spirit, even I think, uh, has anniversaries. They remember trauma. And I've obviously got uh, a couple, uh, one being the jugular vein incident. And so March is always a very difficult uh, month for me. I feel squirrely. I feel uh, I'll go two or three days without sleeping, and then I'll sleep. Uh, yesterday, I slept almost all day and all through the night. And I know what it is. It's the anniversary uh, that my body is remembering. And I only learned that about four or five years ago, um, that March was always a tough month. And now I know why. Um, the other obvious that we haven't talked about, maybe Will, is I'm a suicide survivor. And that's October 7th. And sometimes I have a tough time around that anniversary date. Now, you've you've taken all those incidents um, and, and, and you've written about them. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the book. And, and I think, much like this interview, the book touches on everything. It's called The Crazy Game, How I Survived in the Crease and Beyond by Clint Malarchuk with Dan Robson, who is a fan. I mean, as a writer myself, one of those guys you look up to for his, for his abilities. Um, what, um, what writing, writing this book in itself caused a relapse as well. And I think much like this interview, we're just, we're just going to go all through some of the different aspects. We want to talk about your work now as a mental health advocate, but we want to also want to talk about some of the stories in the crease, the things that bond us together, equipment, things like that. But let's start, let's start with the mental health advocacy. You do some speaking engagements. You've taken the lessons that you learned, um, from having your jugular cut in Buffalo and the process of getting to the suicide attempt while you were a goalie coach with the Columbus Blue Jackets and everything in between and everything you learned from it after that suicide attempt and you're now trying to help others with it. Walk, walk us through what that process is like and and how that's helped with the healing process. Well, first of all, you're definitely right about Dan Robson as a great writer. I was his, he wrote an article on me, I can't remember, I think it was Sportsnet Magazine or something. Yeah. And I, I basically told him, He's this young guy, and, and uh, I said, Dan, you know, there's people that have really kind of put words not right in, in things that I've said in interviews and that. I said, if you do this, if I'm doing this, and we're going to go deep on a mental health issue of mine, 
you screw me over, I'll come find you. (laughs) Well, he did an unbelievable, unbelievable job on that article. So when I woke up out of intensive care, uh, you know, out of of a coma with a bullet lodged in my skull, um, I I thought, wow, God saved me for, for those that are still suffering because I've died almost three times now. And he's, so I contacted Dan and said, look, I've been dabbling in this book thing. It was all about funny, funny hockey stories. And I want to talk about my life. And, uh, he wrote a great article, um, word for word, what I said, no, no in between stuff. And so he, uh, started the book with me, um, did a great job. In fact, he was so like the book would have been okay, I think, but he made it great. And I'm not bragging, but it is my greatest accomplishment in life. The book has helped so many people. I didn't know it would, but it was Dan's doing because he traveled on a road trip with us. He came, took a six-month leave of absence from his job to really bear down on the book. And, uh, wow, he just, like, he would ask me questions, and I'd answer it. And he goes, but Clint, what were you thinking? Or, Clint, what were you feeling? And I'll tell you what, uh, you know, guys, uh, tears would start welling up and falling down my face. And he was very conscientious and, and, and compassionate. He said, oh, whoa, uh, do, we, do we need to take a break? And I'm, no, no, you got, what was I thinking and what was I feeling? I'm going to tell you. So he was the guy that really was able to draw out the emotion and make the book uh, a, a great success. Um, also, uh, he was a goalie. And so he could relate to a lot of the pressures, the, the things that I was talking about, you know, not with mental illness, but, but, but about the game. So he did a great job. And, you know, as time went by, you know, uh, you know, leading up to the suicide attempt, uh, wow, I was so mixed up and confused. And like so many of, we've lost some former NHLers, you know, with suicide and addiction. And, um, you know, so for me to be able to, I guess the greatest thing, guys, would be that uh, I had players reach out to me, not just hockey players, current current NHL hockey players, but baseball, uh, basketball, football, and just saying thank you. Thank you. I thought I was the only one. And they weren't always uh, necessarily talking about mental illness. They were talking about the pressures, uh, because I do talk a lot about you know being an athlete, being a goalie in the NHL, and the pressures and being a backup, being the number one and the things that go with that. So, you know, I, 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 you know, the book's not necessarily even a hockey book. It's a life book. That's uh, that's fantastic. And it must be so, so empowering to hear that you're helping others. I'm, I'm really curious as you talk about the pressures and you specifically there mentioned the NHL, but, but what, what do you see in the game today? Um, with, with younger kids as well. The the pressure, I remember when we, we used to play, it was road hockey, outdoor rinks. It was just all fun and games, and maybe it led to a career. Maybe it didn't. Now we've got parents spending tens of thousands of dollars every year, kids training year-round. Is Are you worried about the pressure ramping up on kids and then maybe even more specifically goaltenders at a young age um, with the way the game is developing today? Well, I, I, I can personally say I've kind of tutored the kid since he was, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12. And his dad is a just an awesome guy, really nice man. But boy, he put so much pressure on his son. Uh, I've had him on the ice uh, passing pucks because I you know, needed a passer, 
whatever. And the old man can barely skate, but you know, he could pass the puck to me and I could shoot it and help this kid. And then he starts intervening on the ice. Well, first of all, I'm the goalie coach. Hold your temper, you know, <laughs> but really, really, uh, yeah. And I've seen it, I've seen it in rinks and I think it's really un- unacceptable. I know that I can't remember which Sutter, a couple of them uh, suggested kids should play, and Wayne Gretzky as well says they should play other sports in the summer. They really should because you you start to different sports uses uh, different thinking, different part of the brain, and it's actually enhancing your hockey skills or your goaltending skills, whatever it may be. And I I really believe Hutch, what you just asked me is way past the needle's gone way past. Uh, uh, what you're saying, you, you, you're almost saying, well, are they starting to get, you know, no, we're way past the pressures of, and the, the money they're putting into their kids. When I played hockey, yeah, I wanted to be a, as a kid, I wanted to be an NHL or I dreamed of it. We all did, you know, road hockey out in the outdoor rinks, whatever it might be. And it was fun. And now, man, oh man, these kids get this, uh, this pressure from mostly parents and some, some coaches even. And I'm even guilty of that, coaching some young kids, saying, "Hey, you know, let's you're you're not working hard enough. If you want to make it to the big leagues, you gotta you gotta have a work ethic." Am I guilty? Maybe, um, but I I say it and then I let it go. I say my piece and let it go. And you know, it's okay to sit around the dinner table and say, "Son or daughter, this is this is what you want, right? You gotta just work hard, but you gotta have fun. You gotta have fun. Once the fun leaves." It's a job, and none of us like our jobs, really. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're when you're 14 and and you love the game, but you hate the the, the the fact that it's almost a job at 14 or 15, that's not right. Now, one of the things you talked about, I mean, you talked about goaltending as an obsession, and and I think that's part of where we've gotten to. It's just an obsession sometimes pushed by the parents as opposed to the goalies themselves. That's when it becomes unhealthy. But part of your challenges, part of your diagnosis in between the skate cut in Buffalo and the suicide attempt when you were with Columbus was being diagnosed with with OCD, with obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the things you said in the book was that in some ways you felt or thought maybe all goalies have OCD. And in some ways, even us at Ingle, when we talk about the habits and the rituals, in some ways we almost celebrate that. Like the all these things, these rituals that bind us together as goaltenders, but it can be unhealthy as well. Where do you know, how do you, you know, where do you see that balance for, for everyone? Is it unique to each guy? Well, it is a little bit unique, but it's not. Uh, Kevin, it's a great question because my wife is a figure skating coach and a power skating coach. When I met her, I was coaching in the American Hockey League in San Antonio. I met her. She was uh, working at those same rinks that we practiced at. And, you know, we start dating, and then I explained to her some of my history with mental illness, especially the OCD. And she was like, oh, my God, that's what I look for in my skaters, the ones that want to do that jump and fall and do the jump and fall and do it. And no, okay, take a time out. No, I got to get this jump right. So it's obsessive compulsive disorder. And I, I believe every goalie's got it. I believe every successful pe- uh, person uh, has a certain amount of OCD, but it's when it overtakes your life, when, like it did mine. 
Um, you know, and that was after the accident. I had no idea that trauma could really make everything explode. So yeah, I was predisposed to mental illness, OCD and that. But after the accident, uh, it really became overwhelming. I couldn't function in, in regular life. At the rink, it was a good thing. But off the ice, it was a very bad thing. I, I had a hard time leaving the house, um, you know, uh, hand washing, uh, cleaning, uh, all those things that go with OCD. But before that accident, my OCD was pretty much about hockey. Yes, I went through different phases of, you know, light switches or, um, you know, hand washing or whatever, but it was minimal because I channeled all my OCD to hockey, which was a good thing. So it's a balance where, where do you, you know, where does it overtake your life or does it overtake your life? Are you able to bring it to the rink, um, as a goalie or a figure skater or forward, whatever it might be, and then go home and live normally. I wasn't you, living normally. You said you see, you you talked about it in the book too, and you said it just there it was a competitive advantage at the rink or prepping to be at the rink. Your your workout regiment is well documented and well ahead of the curve compared to some of your peers at the time. Um, so I mean, it must have it must have been pretty shocking for you all the work you did to be physically ahead of the game, and then you'd walk into locker rooms or or for example in a preseason game in your first year with the Nordiques have the backup goalie come back to the bench after a timeout and have to return the smokes. He forgot he'd stuffed in his pads to his, to his trainer. You ruined it. I was going to, I was going to tell that story. That was, a- well, we want to hear it. <laughs> well, it was Michelle Plack. When I broke into the NHL, first of all, I walk in uh, day one of training camp and they're going to do fitness testing. And back then fitness testing wasn't, you know, like it is now. And I see this kind of chunky guy and he's riding the bike and he's got a cigarette in his mouth and he's, he's speaking French, uh, you know, it's Quebec city. And, uh, back then we only had three or four English speaking guys. So anyways, I'm, I'm really scared, intimidated and, and everything. And I thought he was a trainer because he didn't look like he was in great shape, this guy. <laughs> and, and, and he's smoking. I thought they were, uh, calibrating the bike and he was a trainer. Just, we're going to get this right. And he's smoking. Everybody's laughing. It's all in French. I can't understand what they're saying, but everybody's laughing. I go, who is that guy? Everybody's laughing. They go, oh, that's Moose Dupont, our, our captain. <laughs> oh, my God. And then yeah, we had, we probably had five or six smokers on the team back then, and they had a special area that they would smoke between periods. So Michelle Plath, I was like the third goalie. Uh, and uh, Michelle Plath, uh, Dan Bouchard was the starting goalie. He, he, he got pulled. So Plather goes in and there's a whistle and the linesman's picking stuff up off the ice, you know, and he skates to our bench and it's a, a cigarette lighter and a pack of smokes that he put, he would put in his pad, he would, something in his pad so he could go directly when the buzzer for intermission goes, he could go directly to his smoking area with the five or six guys that smoked. <laughs> and he, he got put in the game, forgot to take him out. <laughs> It's not quite as bad as uh, some of the stories we heard about hot dog hot and dogs. candy corn being stuffed in the pads on the bench. That that might be a little worse than those things. Yeah, uh, Mike Paul, Mike Palmatier was notorious as a popcorn eater, right? He get the popcorn before a game. Um, that was his his superstition. Uh, a lot of guys, yeah, we, they would sneak uh, 
you know, you play in Montreal or some of these places, they got the, what they call Shen Show, yeah. which means hot dog in French. And they, oh man, they, they were good. So yeah, the goalie, the backup goalie would probably order <laughs> something. He grabbed the stick boy and say, go up and get me a couple of Shen Shows. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit too about equipment. Now that's one thing where, you know, OCD, I'm guessing you probably like did how you put it on, how often you cleaned it. Um, did that become part of, part of the ritual as well for you? No, no, there's nothing like that. Um, the equipment thing I was infatuated with, I think most goalies really love their equipment and they're always looking for, this or that or grab. I used to stuff my. Uh, I love Bernie Perrant and then Kelly Lindbergh and and they were they we were stand up goalies back then. And we, if you look at their pads, they're kind of like a V, shaping from the top down, getting wider and wider. And that's to protect your five hole. You push your knees together because we wear butterfly back then. Nope. And uh, so you push your knees together, and the V would form together near the bottom. So your five hole. And Tony Esposito was notorious. He had 15 inches, 15 inch pads. Did you know that? I did not know that. I'd heard stories uh, about no, a, a mesh oh, yeah. between the legs, but. Oh, yeah. Oh, you had the mesh too? Like, and I was a cheater. We all cheated back then. Like, it was just like, if you can get away with it, go for it. What's and the, so what's that's the best what cheat did. story? The best what? What's the best cheat story cheat? from all these guys? Yeah, what, what what are some good ones after the uh, fifteen inch and the and the mesh? I, I, I would have to say Tony Esposito. He was the first guy. Um, fifteen inch pads. Okay, that's that's five inches on each leg over the limit. They might have been sixteen. I don't know. <laughs> he had huge pads, and he if you look at pictures of him back in the day. He had the molded mask to the face, like we all did. Yeah. But he also had, he was the first guy to put wires. He was. Around the eyeball. Yeah. You look at some of them pictures, you've got the wires kind of around the eyeball. And then that, uh, of course, evolved into the uh, modern mask that we all use. But he was a pioneer big time. Um, yeah, but he, he would, he, he could cheat anyway. He, he, they always say, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you know. And his goalies back then, you know, uh, we had small equipment. So if we could somehow make ourselves bigger, especially with the pads, we didn't care much about the upper body. But uh, the equipment uh, has come so far. I think it was um, I was with Columbus coaching, and and our, one of our goalies got hurt or sick, and so I put the gear on. It was in Vancouver, Clint. I was there. Okay, yes, you were. And was I good? You were great. I know. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. But I was a little wor- I, I was a little worried about you coming off the ice because you looked pretty bagged. Oh, I was sucking air. <laughs> in fact, in fact, our our, uh, our assistant coach Gary Agnew at the time said, "Clint, quick one down, quick one down." You know, because I was butterflying because the the evolution of the butterfly um, is is a lot about survival. When we played in practice, you stood up because you didn't want to. If you butterflied, you're getting it off the shoulder. You're yeah. getting it off the elbow. You're getting it, you know, and it hurt. It really hurt. In fact, you'd be in the shower with the guys after, and they go, "Hey, I got that one. That bruise there, that's mine." You know, that you know, they're like laughing, comparing who who hurt you the most. You know, it was painful. So um, that's why stacking the pads, uh, you know, back in the day, the double stack. That's why they did it because in early days they had no mask, 
So you're not going to fly across face first and get one in the noggin. So you stack the pads. Well, a lot of goaltending back then was uh, about survival, about survival. The, the best record in all professional sports, I mean every professional sport, is Glenn Hall. 502 consecutive games. Can you believe? And most of it was without a mask. Can you believe Never that? Beaten. No, that's 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 in, that that's remarkable. Now, hey, listen, we're talking about masks here, and you mentioned the wires and and Hall playing without. Did you really play your whole career with masks that were made by your mom? Not my whole career. Okay, just to start. Yeah, but yeah. but your mom made your masks in the NHL. Yeah, she made she made my mask. She made uh, a number of of goalies. My brother. Uh, who was drafted by the Washington Capitals in 74. Garth, yep. Yep, Garth. And, uh, yeah, she made all the local Edmonton kids. At that time, we were in Edmonton, and everybody had a mask from my mom. Wow. Yep. And I started in, yeah, and they were good. They were they were awesome. I mean, look at my rookie card. That's my mom's mask uh, that she made for me. Wow, that's, I mean, that's remarkable. You know what went into before even the wires and all that? Um, you'd have to get, you'd lay down. Mom would put a couple straws in your mouth so you can breathe. Why would you have to breathe through straws? Well, I'll explain. Plaster of Paris all over your face and heavy and hot and warm and just like, holy crap. And if you've got claustrophobia, you're not going to do this. So then the you get the cast. A facial cast, and this is this is for the uh, the form fitting mask before the the wires and the cage. So you're breathing through straws, <laughs> and then uh, she pull that off and do do whatever else she had to do. Uh, it was incredible. And and you're for, and and to stick on the equipment theme for a sec, there's a couple of interesting ones. Your first pair of goalie skates, you collected pop cans to buy them. And the gentleman who sold them to you at the old United Cycle was none other than Ken Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't sell them, but the, the, I got the money. I'd take it to the Bottle Depot or whatever, and I'd take the money to Ken. And Ken was, oh, my God, he was, he was over, probably over 400 pounds back then. He, he was in the basement of United Cycle. But this guy was a caring guy. Uh, he knew that I was kind of strapped financially and, you know, he knew the family history a little bit and, uh, yeah, Ken outfitted me for years and I know he gave me great deals. Um, yeah, I'd go down to United cycle and there'd be big old hitch and I'm so proud of hitch. You know, first of all, he had like, we all have our issues, right? We all have our demons and, and his was a weight problem. Yet he made it to the NHL, not only to the NHL, but won a Stanley Cup. And, you know, he's one of the highest. You know, he'll be a Hall of Famer coach for sure. But yeah. I love Hitch. I've known, I've known Hitch my whole life. And you ended up being the goalie coach in Columbus when he was the head coach as well. So everything came full circle there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, Hitch and I met each other. Well, we, we keep in touch, you know. Uh, obviously he's got his hands full in Edmonton with what's going on there, but I'll tell you what he, I use him when I do my public speaking thing. I use a, a few people. If I do a leadership talk, uh, I 
use Hitch as one of the leaders that I really learned a lot from, mostly in, in Columbus. And, uh, yeah, I use Babcock. I use Jacques Demers, who was awesome. Um, there's another, oh, Mike Keenan. Oh boy. There's a dude. Uh, but Mike, well, uh, uh, you want to hear a good goalie, uh, coaching story? Absolutely. Especially if it involves Mike sure Keenan and the Florida Panthers. Yes. Yes. That's it. Okay. Good, good segue there. So I'm, I'm, I'm the new hire. Okay. The coaching staff and everything. Rick, Rick Dudley was the GM in, in Florida and he called, he says, Hey, you, you, you know what? You're interested. I said, absolutely. He says, okay, we're going to bring you into Florida. You got to interview with Mike. So I went down there interviewed with Mike. Great guy. Um, we got off to a good start and everything. I think I was probably hired before the interview. Um, but anyways, so we're into the season. It's late October, like early season, maybe November. I don't know. <laughs> And I had Luongo on his first tour in Florida. And uh, Luongo was great, very athletic and everything. I just had to get him more compact. And, you know, when he opened up, he would open up real large. So we had to make that push. You, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so we get we get spanked. And uh, Mike, uh, of course, being Mike, Iron Mike, who I love, I'm going to tell you, he's a good man. Um, he goes, you talk to your goalie? I said, yeah, we talked right after the game, Mike. Okay, next day. Did you talk to your goalie? I'm like, yeah, I, Mike, I, I, okay, now I'm getting confused. So the next day, did you talk to your goalie? I said, yeah, Mike, I've, he keeps asking me every day. <laughs> so the next game, we're playing the New York Rangers in Florida. And uh, we're down two to one after the first period. And we had a really bad team back then. It was, it was Luongo or nothing. <laughs> and anyway, so after the first period, he goes, do you talk to your goalie? I said, yo, like, I mean, can, can we say that on a podcast? Uh, we're okay. We're okay. Uh. It's real world. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm cussing Mike out. I said, you worry about your goddamn team. I'll worry about the goddamn goalie. And I, I snapped at him and I gave it to him like uh, F-bombs here and there and everywhere. And so my phone, my phone rings at uh, one o'clock in the morning. I see it. It says keen. And I'm like keen and oh shit, I'm fired. I'm fired. No one, no one talks, <laughs> no one talks to Mike Keenan like that. No one, you know, and he said, he, he never called me Clint. He always called me goalie. And he said like that goalie. <laughs> he says, goalie, how are you? I said, well, I'm trying to sleep. What'd you think of the game? I said, uh, Mike, you know what? We're horseshit. He said, what'd you think of your goalie? I said, he was great, Mike. I'm not backing down. This this kid's our team. And I'm thinking I'm getting fired anyway, so I'm going to tell him what I think. And I thought that's why he called me, to fire me. I said, nope. Luongo's awesome. He's, he's a good person, great goalie, blah, blah, blah. He says, okay, goalie, I'll see you tomorrow morning. I'm like, okay, wow, that's weird. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting fired in the morning. <laughs> Next morning, I walk in. <laughs> Next morning, I walk in, and uh, Mike calls me in his office. I say, oh, God, here it comes. You know, and he said, what do you think of our power play? And I'm like, well, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm the goalie coach, not the assistant coach, whatever. No, no, I really want to know on a goalie's perspective. And he always said goalie. He didn't say goalie. He said goalie. So I said, okay. 
um, I'm not comfortable talking about this, Mike, because it's not my job. But if you're asking me, I'll tell you what I think. You got to have this shooter over here. We had Oli Oaken, and I said, Oli's got a great one timer. You got to, you know, and, and oh my God. So as time went on, I didn't get fired. As time went on, uh, that season was a horrible season for us. We get spanked uh, uh, 10 to 2 in, uh, in Washington. So we fly to New Jersey the next day, or no, right after the game, sorry. And uh, he says, Go on. I'll meet you in the lobby in 10 minutes. So I take my bags up and bring them down. I think I'm going to get my ass chewed because our goalies let in 10 goals. And Mike and I went out and we had some beers and never talked about it. I guess the moral of the story is I became Mike Keenan's right-hand man, the fire, the fireman that put out fires because him and Rick Dudley were not getting along, our GM. Um, and so I was, I was like, holy crap, I'm just a goalie coach. I don't need to be running a power play and putting out fires with the, you know, and the owner got involved too. Oh my God. You know, so it was, it was, it was a, a eventful, eventful season for sure. A lot of that, we hear that Clint, you know, the, sadly, I think a lot of the, the position, the goalie coach position over the years has become about defending your guys and whose fault it is sometimes, sometimes problematically so, but for you as a goalie coach, like, like was, was that job more about getting your guys in the right mental space as much as it was about the technical stuff? You know, you talk about tightening Luongo up, like where's that balance? How much of it is is helping them between teen the ears versus between the pipes. What's your philosophy there? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I had to do some, uh, you know, we always do fine tuning. Like you look at uh, the guy in Edmonton, Constantin or what is Koskinen. Koskinen. You know, they're, they're, everybody's going high glove on him. And he made a comment saying, my glove is fine. It's my positioning. I got to get there. And, and I agree with him a lot of what he says, right? I don't yep. think he's a slow reflex guy or anything. It's his positioning. He's got to get from A, point A to point B and set. That's the whole key to goaltending, getting from point A to point B and set. Well, easier said than done in the fast game of hockey. But uh, I think for me, and that's where uh, some goalie coaches don't understand the mental part of the game. I, I'm not going to say a name, but uh, yeah, I will tell you, a goalie coach came to me one time. I was a backup, and the number one gets uh, hurt. And he's going, oh, my God, Clint, okay, you got to be ready. you gotta, you got to really go in there, and this is your chance, and this is this, and this is that. So all, all he's doing is putting pressure on me, which I already put on myself. I'm going, holy crap, I got to carry the ball. This kid's hurt for how long? And I've got to be there. You know what I mean? So I've already, I already know that pressure, that internal pressure. And the last thing I need is a goalie coach coming in and, and reaffirming that. What he should say as a goalie coach, and this is what I would do as a goalie coach and did, you know what? You've been working your ass off. You have worked so hard, and yeah, you've been riding the bench and getting spotty games here and there and everything, but you know what? You've been working so hard, and we've done such great things together, uh, working on this or working on that, whatever it might have been. That's how you approach that situation. But if you haven't played the game at 
at a high level, you, how would you understand the pressures? So he said all the wrong things to me. I'm curious about your, uh, your influences growing up as goalie coaches. And, and I imagine growing up at a similar time that I did that, that you didn't have a lot of coaching as a youngster. And I've, I've read that you've had some chats with, uh, with Dave Dryden as a bit of a support, but I was fascinated when I, when I read about your pregame routine and the balls off the wall and, and so on. And that just seems so far ahead of the curve. And then when I read that, uh, that came from Vladislav Trechak, I knew exactly why you were ahead of the curve. So talk to me about working with Trechak. Oh, that was awesome. That was so cool. He was the dominant goaltender back then. And the Canada would play the Russians and, you know, you had to beat Trechak, you know, they, they were a dynamic, uh, team, but Trechak was so good. So who do you want to learn from? You want to learn from the best. So I, uh, through my agent, uh, I heard that Vladislav Trechak was doing a goalie school in Montreal. And I went, wow, I'd love to go there. And so here I am. I was 27 years old playing for the Washington Capitals. And this is what the game has changed so much. I asked the cap, will you pay my way? Will you pay my tuition to the camp? Will no, no, no. Nowadays, that's automatic, right? <laughs> you know, you know, oh, or the players make so much damn money that they, they don't even ask. Um, so I went there and I'm out there on the, I'm, I'm 27 years old. I'm out there with 14, 15 year old kids. And, and, and yeah, but Vlad was so cool because he said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. You're NHL. I'm going to use you for demonstration. I go, okay. Demonstration. Okay. We'll do that. So he, he had me demonstrate stuff that I didn't even know what he wanted, but he would tell me. And yeah, that was pretty cool. But that, you know what, that, that reminds me of, of my OCD and my dedication to being the best. I paid my own way. Uh, we didn't make a lot of money back then. I paid my own way, uh, airfare, hotel, camp tuition, got to hang out with Trechak and work with him. Oh, he taught me so much. And that is where I learned how to butterfly. Ah, yeah, and, and that's something I saw. I saw. I I went back and saw some old videos of him playing against Canada, and that's what stood out to me. Is in a day and age when nobody, save for maybe Tony, was using the butterfly. Yeah. Trechak really was. He was way ahead of the you, curve. You know who was the first real butterfly goalie? It's Glenn Hall, wasn't it? Yeah, that a boy, that boy Hutch. <laughs> yep, yep, Glenn Hall, Glenn Hall with no mask. Incredible. I mean, yeah. You know what, uh, on a side note, uh, Glenn Hall called me a number of years back. I was going through a, a bad deal. How he got my number, how he opened up or whatever. But what a great man to reach out to me. And Don Cherry did too, you know. We're brothers in the game. But the goaltending game, how Glenn Hall got my number and called me and said, how are you doing, Quinn? I heard you're you know, going through some stuff. What a man. He's in his 80s, well into his 80s, I think. Sharp as a tack. Yep. Yep. Which, uh, which is... He's got a grandson as a goalie, I think. Oh, you're kidding? Really? Uh, Bernie Perrant was my kind of idol, you know. Uh, there was a coach in, in the Western Hockey League uh, that, uh, you know, you, 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 back then, this is how far our game has come. Do not go down. If you go down... You know, something's wrong, right? You stand up, you play the angles, you know, this and that. And so this coach, and I'm, I'm not going to mention his name, 
put a rope around the rafters, around the the goalie's uh, armpits in there, and every time he went down, he'd <laughs> jerk it up. Oh my god! Oh yeah, old school, old school, old school. So, sort of limits wandering out of the crease with that on you too, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Exactly. Well, he didn't mind that, but you know, when when a goalie went down, he'd have that guy in the corner just pull on that rope. Clint, when you were when you were talking about uh, going to Trechak camp, you brought up the OCD and said that maybe that was something that drove you as a as a goaltender when you were younger, uh, and then of of course got worse as you got older. What have you learned along the way to to help control that? Is it just about having somebody to talk to, or have you learned some specific things that have helped you bring that under control? Well, I've done several. Uh, uh, I guess you call them. You go away to a camp. <laughs> And, yeah. and you work on, on, on certain things. So I did, I did one uh, a couple of years ago, really helped me. It was a lot of retreat, retreat. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, I go on this retreat and there was a lot of Eastern, uh, you know, yoga, uh, things like that, uh, calming things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously I, I do need to take medication. Um, you know, Oh, I, I'm going to tell you a great story. I'm going to, um, so, uh, how do I do this without, so I had a goalie coach, my old goalie coach. I don't know if I should, uh, use the names. So I have this goalie coach, old goalie coach. He calls me, oh, this has been probably, oof, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Anyways, he says, he's got a goalie that's been diagnosed with, uh, you know, mental illness, whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, OCD or whatever. I think it was OCD, but anyways, can you talk to my goalie? And I said, well, hell yeah, I can. Because he's really worried about going on medication to help. You know, he's afraid it might slow his reflexes down or whatever. So and this is the NHL. So I called that goalie and I had a great conversation with him. And he went on to play another, I don't know, five or six years. And one of the elite goalies in the league on medication. So we got to get past. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. His name is. Uh, uh, no, I'm not going to say. It. Yeah. Don't. Don't. That's all right. That's all right. You don't have no, to. No. But I think. I think the message is there. There that you're right. We we got to get past some of the stigmas, and and it, and that's the work that you're doing right now, trying to drive people past those. Yeah. And like I said, I was so amazed at how many people, um, after my book came out, like current pros in the NHL, said thank you. What because as you as you know as you guys know I I don't just talk about my mental illness I talk about the pressures yeah uh, being a goalie being a goalie following the puck all that you know we've seen Clint um, since you since your book came out we've seen other goaltenders come out with their stories uh, Corey Hirsch who's working here in Vancouver as an analyst shared his story and his battle with mental health. Um, you know, much like you talking about the story, uh, you know, unnamed goalie, I know there are others. There are some of that have come out that have been inspired by you sharing your story, by Corey sharing his story, and they've done the same. There are others who still haven't that I know about, and we won't share those names. It comes back to me, I, I, there was a line in your book early on, that, that I, and I'm wondering if you ever found the answer, because the whole book kind of is, is really about this, is do you become unique as a goalie? Or does the position draw unique people? I'm curious, after all these years and after being through um, all this, where you come out on that? Because we do, it, it's, it's, 
We see a lot more of it, certainly, it seems, in this position in this sport. I, I really believe that uh, the position draws a unique personality. And, and that being said, I was asked the question one time, could the goalies of my era, you know, the 80s and 90s, play in today's game? And I, uh, my, my answer was, and Steve Ludzik, who, you know, coached uh, Tampa Bay and played in the NHL and everything, he was a head coach. <laughs> he said, that was such a great answer. My answer was, could the goalies of today play in our era of uh, equipment, hurt, pain, um, you know, going to practice and trying to just hone your skill, but also uh, protect yourself. And Steve thought that was the greatest answer he's ever heard. He still uses it. So, yeah, I think the position is uh, uh, very unique. I mean, there's a ton of pressure, a um, ton of work ethic. You're in a team sport, but you're also an individual in that team sport. You have the ability to win a game or lose a game. That's a ton of pressure. More so than baseball pitchers more so than football quarterbacks more so than anybody like i mean if you're if you're really going to have a bad game and the team is playing good and every shot comes and leaks through you we've all we all know how that feels but when you're on your game and your team is not playing well um and you're standing on your head you get two points so yeah there's a ton of pressure so i think the that position is a lot of, I think a lot of kids, uh, come to the, they love the equipment, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. They want to be a goalie. Of course. This equipment is so cool. <laughs> well, they're not the ones that are going to probably make it to the NHL. Some will, maybe, I don't know, but it's that passion to be in a position on a team sport to handle all that pressure as the individual in the team sport. And you guys know what I'm talking about. I think every goalie does. Sure yep. do. Okay. So are we weirdos? <laughs> no, you. Oh, every everybody everywhere is like like you said. We all have our things, don't we? Yeah, I I believe that. I I totally believe that. Well, and you, I'm curious too. One last one. Um, the crazy game, the book, how I survived in the crease and beyond. Did you you talk early about about the word crazy, the crazy goalie, right? That 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 stigma was attached to goaltenders almost by default, especially when you were, you know, especially when you were coming up, it's maybe changed a little bit now. Did you have any hesitation to use that title for the book? Where do you, where do you come out on that label of, of goalies being crazy? That is a great question, Kev. Great question. So when the, uh, working with the publishers and everything, uh, they, they wanted the crazy game. And I said, no, 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 because that's uh, stigma. We're, we're, and they said, Clint, do you understand how many times in your book you said, I thought I was crazy? And I went, nah, I don't know. But yeah, I guess I probably did say a few things about being crazy. And so we went with it. At first, I wasn't really fan. In the U.S., it's called the a matter of inches. They changed because the, the publishers in the U.S. didn't like the crazy game because of the stigma. Yeah, yeah the crazy game really grew on me. It took a while, but it, you know what? I said, all right, let's go with it because, uh, we're a crazy breed 
as goalies. But are we really crazy mentally? No, not really. Some of us, <laughs> like me, are. But, you know, I, I just, I, and now I love it. I hate, I hate the, a matter of inches. I love the crazy game. And, and you know, sometimes the only way to get rid of some of those stigmas attached to words is to use them um, and to talk about them. And you do that now in addition to the book, which, like, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this as a writer, but because I read so much online and stories and articles, I hadn't read a book, Clint, in more than a decade. And that's kind of a shameful admission. And and I read your book cover to cover last night till four in the morning. I couldn't put it down. So whether you're a goalie or not, go get the book, folks. But the other thing is talking about these issues and helping other people. As a mental health advocate, as a speaker, just just share a little bit about that part of your life right now when you get away from the ranch and you go speak to groups and to other people and what that's meant to you and, and even how people can reach you if they want you to come speak to them or to people that they know or their groups. Well, for me, um, you know, I've had, it's very emotional when I speak because I get people coming up and, you know, for the first time in their life, uh, they're going, wow, this guy was a NHL goalie and he suffered and they've been suffering in silence, which I did for years and years um, for them to understand people to understand that it is not a weakness. It's not a week of spirit. It's not a week of anything. You're not weak. You're sick and you can get well, you can get healthy. And, and for me, you know, embracing people, crying with people, all those things that uh, my book is given me and it's hard I'll, I'll tell you boys it's hard but uh you know what to embrace people that for the first time in their life they're going to go get help that's pretty cool it's very cool yeah as i mentioned earlier like you, you did have a relapse while you were writing the book and because you were sharing all these things so i think and today even today when we we called to talk to you we had no idea it was the 30th anniversary clint of 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 having your having your life almost end in that crease in Buffalo that night. We had no idea. And yet you're still without hesitation to talk to us and share these stories because you know it can help other people. And I guess on behalf of everyone, and much like those people that come up to you, I just, I guess I just wanted to say thanks. Oh, yep. Thank you for your courage. Uh, Hutch and Woody, thank you. This is going to be a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a real, real privilege for us. And, uh, I have a feeling one day, maybe we could all sit down together in person and, uh, have a great chat for another one. That'd be awesome. All right, boys. Love you, boys. You too, Clint. You take care. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Clint. Yeah. Bye now. Great job, gentlemen. And, uh, and Clint, uh, we certainly appreciate, uh, your time around what is a, a stressful part of the year for, for Clint and his family, and just want to preference this: this wasn't set up around the 30th anniversary because I, I started doing the research leading up to uh, to the interview, and started connecting the dots to the dates, and started doing math. Going, no, it's not really, and and it, like to the day, the 30th anniversary, Woody. Yeah, and and you know, again, it wasn't planned that way, and by us or Clint, it, we'd we'd talked for we'd probably probably about three four weeks earlier talked about getting them on the podcast. Schedules didn't work, and then they did work. And in the back and forth, we're like, okay, let's do Thursday. No, okay, well, we'll talk Friday. It worked better for everyone. 
The night before, I got a text. Um, hey, guess what? From Clint, it's the 30th anniversary. And right away, I, you know, you, you hear it there, right? I mean, the relapses for him occurred after the Zednik skate cut, which brought back uh, a lot of the, the trauma that he went through because, of course, everyone wanted to interview him. Uh, the relapse in Calgary was the process of writing the book. And so the last thing we wanted to do was bring it up on uh, on the 30th anniversary and make him talk about it or ask him to talk about it. Um, so as soon as we found out, we're like, hey, let's do it another time. Uh, but Clint being Clint and just such an easy guy to talk to and having sort of wrapped his head around this to the extent where he does go and talk about it uh, to help others, that he did write the book, that he is helping with you know mental health advocacy as a speaker, as a public speaker. And I'd encourage anyone that has an opportunity or a need to to reach out and and have him in as a speaker because you can tell how powerful and how strong he is. Uh, he wanted to talk. And I think beyond as much as it, the focus for a lot of people is the incident, as you can tell, uh, there are a lot of great stories from a great person around the game that go beyond that incident. He's a lot more than just the mental health uh, and just that side. of. I mean, his mom making his max. Are you kidding Unreal. me? Yeah. Oh, like just gold. And a, and a great person, too. Oh, I'd love to sit down and, and talk hockey with him for hours. I think we had more preamble with him than we've had with any guest because as soon as he gets on the line, it's like he's uh, an old friend. Uh, I, I think I finished that little bit, or was it in a text later, just saying what a privilege it was to talk to him, and I, I, I really meant that. It, it brought up some interesting things for us uh, personally as a family as well. Um, young goaltender we knew uh, from some summer training took his own life last year. And uh, my son had been training with him at age 11, and uh, that was something for him to think about. And so we talked about Clint's interview as well and, and the whole pressure that goaltenders are under and how unique it is. I, I thought it was great that he brought that up and something that we all really need to remember. And, and as a result, it, it opened up some really frank conversation at home. And I think it's just super important that as we, uh, you know, we give kids every opportunity we possibly can to succeed at the position, and it's important that they realize... Um, that the only reason we're doing it is so that they can have fun and that they can grow and that there's no pressure that they have to succeed, that there has to be a career. If they can move, if they want to move on to something else entirely, that that's okay. Um, as parents in hockey in general, I think we put those pressures on kids and then those pressures are magnified as goaltenders because obviously every mistake is seen by everybody. So uh, it was a real privilege to listen to him and I'm thankful that he uh, enabled us to have some great conversations at home and I hope he will for some other people as well. And he just likes talking hockey. And I was going to say, like, fantastic. We'll de we'll definitely have him on again. And like as we've discussed, we got to go see him in person down at his ranch just outside of uh, of Las Vegas because they're those stories are important to tell. Uh, Hutch, you're right. Well said. And I think we can revisit again to remind people how important those stories are. But on top of that, there are so many more stories from the playing career that we never had a chance to get to. We never even got to how he became a horse dentist. The fact that late in his career with Vegas, part of his contract was a new horse every year for his ranch with the Vegas Thunder. Or this is a guy who, like, and he may, that's the other thing. He might be the toughest guy in hockey. Like, forget about enforcers. This is a guy who once fought Dave Tiger Williams in the minor. So lots of great stories we can get to with Clint. And I would recommend to anyone, whether it's from the mental health side or just history of the game, read his book. Um, it's exceptional. As I admitted in the interview, embarrassing as a writer to say I hadn't finished a book in more than a decade. 
but I started reading his in prep for the interview, even though I knew him and knew him as a goalie coach and, and got to know him during late in his goalie coaching career and knew the stories that were going on behind the scenes, most of them. Uh, I felt I really wanted to read the book and I couldn't put it down. It was four in the morning, nonstop, read it cover to cover. I haven't done that in a long time. And it speaks to the power of his message and uh, how well it was told. And I'd recommend it for everyone. We'll make sure we on our uh, social media, we throw up a link to where you can get it. Perfect. New horse uh, every year. That's a, that's a great perk in the contract. Listener question of the week. Uh, this has become a staple. I'm forcing you guys to make sure uh, that we have it in every week. This is my contribution. Uh, Woody, uh, what do you have for us? Yeah, you know what? I uh, I got we got one late in the game from Jen in Calgary. I guess she saw Sergey Bobrovsky uh, when they came through town just this week, and the timing was perfect because obviously I had a chance to talk to Sergey. She was asking why his stick is suddenly all white. And I got to give uh, you know a stick tap to uh, one of the one of the best gear accounts, Goalie Geek Gear Accounts, the Goalie Nerd on Twitter and Instagram, because um, he already sort of had the story in terms of where the sticks were coming from. They're Vaughn sticks. Um, the reason they're white is Vaughn doesn't pay the logo for sticks or helmets anymore. You'll notice the guys that are wearing the Vaughn slash Pro's Choice helmet no longer have a logo on it. The NHL charges a significant fee for each category, uh, and Vaughn didn't, you know, decided declined to pay that fee. So you have to spray paint it over. So that is why Sergey Bobrovsky's stick is all white. Uh, and again, hat tip to the goalie gear nerd on his Instagram account. You can go see pictures of the stick uh, he was sent from the Vaughn factory actually going to Sergey. But we took it a step further and we asked Sergey why all of a sudden he had to switch from the Warrior to that Vaughn. My stick is finished, so I don't have any more of those Warrior stick and uh, Vaughn can make it still the same exact the same stick. That's okay, simple as that. <laughs> and Warrior can? Warrior can make it. Okay, and so it looks like you hold it really down on the paddle, but I saw some pictures. It's quite narrow at the top of the paddle. Do they do that for you? Yes, it's it's uh, it's for me important that the, the stick has a balance, right balance between top top and low part, you know. And so that's uh, and the, the the handle. I think it's not not that hard to make it, but balance is the most important. Okay, and you, can you hold it sort of right. Yeah, there, I've like been. Yeah, I've been. Uh, it's like wide. No, I've been that. I used that in Philly also. So okay. it's just I don't know. I I use that long time so it still allows me to keep the blocker very aggressive you know in the low part low blocker high blocker so it's just it's a good angle i like it a lot i first noticed the bobrovsky stick and the the blocker position last year during warm-up when i was doing a, a game between the senators and the blue jackets and uh, is is that unique or are there other because his, his blocker hand just seemed really low to the ice uh, Somewhat unique, like in terms of it looks like he's gripping it way down the paddle. Um, there are other guys that, that have the same thing. I mean, I think a Curtis McElhenney to the point where I thought maybe it was an Ian Clark thing. They both worked with Ian in Columbus. Um, but for Bob, it's just all about, uh, I, I don't know so much that the, having the blocker low to the ice, but when it is low to the ice on low shots, he feels like he has that reach and that access to be able to get there. And and because he's got that whole sort of fist grip around that that thinned out paddle he's able to really keep that blocker square and not sort of pull it back he's able to get that extension and hold the face of that blocker square to the puck and you're right Darren he probably does that better than anyone and of course on a unrelated 
blocker stick note for Bobrovsky. Uh, I think a lot of people remember, and we talked about it at Engel a couple of years ago. Remember on two-on-ones? Anytime he had to make a push from his left to his right on two-on-ones in a desperation situation, he would drop his stick Bye-bye. on the way. Yeah. yeah, and so that was that was planned. That was practiced with Ian Clark because, again, sometimes the stick limits the range of motion on your blocker, even though Bobrovsky has better motion than others, and he felt in a desperation situation without a stick in hand, that blocker was more free to make a reaching extended save on the backside of that two-on-one. Now, part two, why did they practice it? Because it wasn't just about dropping the stick. It was about making sure as much as you could that you placed it facing up the ice towards center and just above the top of the crease. Because in case you came across desperate and that guy decided to pass back to the other side on the two-on-one, well, he better make sure he puts some sauce on it because he's got to get it over that stick that you vacated that could block that passing lane. Uh, just uh, one more follow-up. I, that's cheating, but if, if you do is it, it... Is it? Well, he didn't it's throw not it. illegal. He dropped it. Dropping I versus it throwing, is. it's an interpretation. That'll, that'll come good, to that reader question point. on rules. We'll, we'll get to that uh, next week probably. Uh, licensing, uh, you guys uh, were just touching on that going into it, but uh, Hutch? Well, just just Ke- Kevin, I mean, maybe comment on this because you ta- you alluded to it with, with the Vaughn stick, but uh, one of our listeners, Mark from Vancouver, Washington, sent in the question, uh, said, can I get your thought on why no NHL goalies use warrior gear, only sticks? So it's obviously related to the, the Vaughn stick, but you want to expand on that a bit? Well, I love the fact, first of all, that you said Vancouver, Washington, because I just got back from Hawaii, and every time someone down in the States asks you where you're from and you say Vancouver, they say Washington. And come like, on. Well, really? Come on, there's another Vancouver? Oh Anyways, that's an aside. Um, there, there's actually nothing that prevents NHL goalies from using Warrior gear. They just wouldn't be able to have the logos on it. But the reason you see the like Warrior the stick. sticks... Yeah, the sticks have the logo on it because they pay the licensing fee for the logo. And there's a long story that we can get into another day about Warrior kind of did. You know, at one time there were guys wearing it. And at one time they had more guys ready to commit to wearing it. But they they changed their sort of business plan uh, and went away from focusing on getting NHL guys in their gear um, and focusing more on grassroots. Because it really is an effort sometimes, especially for a newer company to get pros wearing their equipment. I think they had Tukarski ready to wear it that year in Montreal when they when they changed their plans. I think part of the other thing, too, for Warrior, if I'm honest, is um, the efforts they went through to get NHL guys in their gear actually created a massive backlog in their custom orders uh, at that time. And so you had people that had paid for gear waiting a long time for equipment because they were busy building test sets for anyone who wanted to try it in the NHL. And clearly those two things didn't match. They shifted their focus um, and have had a lot of success from the grassroots side. So so good for them. But that's, that's kind of the origin behind it. It was a shift from them uh, and a necessary shift based on... You know, frankly, I think the wait times at one point were I'd heard as high as four, five, six months. And a lot of that was building gear for NHL guys that were willing to try it at the expense, frankly, of, of other customers. And the licensing is different. You have to pay a different licensing fee for every category of equipment. Yeah, like, no, but so pads, pads, gloves, pads, glove, blocker, blocker, and sticks. Pa- pads, glove, blocker are one category. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, helmets are another category. Um, anything that has a visible logo on it. So that's why, yeah, yeah, sticks are obviously visible. 
I, I'll be honest, I got to look into skates. I don't think that's considered a visible logo. Uh, chest and arm aren't part of this, although let's be honest, you can see some through the white jerseys at times mm. and know what a guy's wearing. The one you see most commonly is the neck guard guys. So a lot of guys say if they're in a Vaughn neck guard, you won't see the logo. If you and me buy it, it'll have a logo across the front of the neck. They usually, for the NHL guys, they will have that logo there, but it's stitched in in the same color as the actual neck guard. So it'll be black Vaughn stitching on a black neck guard. And because it's not visible, you don't have to pay a fee for it. In terms of the stick, Kev, as well, uh, am, I, am I not right that that's one of the pieces that goes on a separate contact contract for goaltenders who are representing a company? So it's a nice way for Warrior to get in without the full mm. spend. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And um, yeah, so it's a separate category. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, like when it comes to uh, goalies wearing certain things, there are contracts involved. And uh, there are only a couple, you know, I believe Warrior and True right now are the only two that are paying just for sticks only. Like if you're in Bauer CCM, you got to be head to toe to be under contract to them. Um, it's, it's an evolving thing. It's Maybe we'll get into this one day. I don't know how excited the equipment companies will be about us talking about this, but um, it's really, it's it's changing rapidly. And to be honest, some of it is the grassroots stuff from Warrior. Um, they've had success uh, at the grassroots level. And so other companies starting to ask questions about why are we spending on NHL guys? Um, or, or is that the wisest use of our money? It's funny you, you mentioned the white stitching on the on the white neck guard, Darren. I don't know if you were old enough to be around in Toronto when uh, they first brought in names on the back of jerseys in the National Hockey League. And Harold Ballard, the owner of the Leafs at the time, didn't want actually to have names on the jerseys because, of course, people were forced to buy programs to know who was on the team yep. and who was playing. So for one, I think it was one game, maybe just a few uh, Ballard actually had them stitch the names on the back of the jersey in the same color as the jersey, so people would still have to buy the programs, but he could still uh, comply with the NHL regulations. That rule was changed very quickly. He's a beauty. He, yeah, was, he was just a, a true beauty. Ha- having spent some time with Gord Stellick and uh, and his interactions with with Harold, uh, there's uh, there's there's more than a few of those stories. He Harold didn't just stumble on those things. There was a lot of thought put into oh, those kind 100%. of things, and and the motivation always came back to the, uh, to to the dollars. Uh, good stuff, guys. Uh, awesome, awesome show. Uh, we appreciate you, the listener, for uh, tuning in. Questions, comments, please hit us up. Uh, Hutch, where where do they hit us up? Uh, I believe that would be podcast at ingolmag.com. That's podcast at ingolmag.com. He's done that. You've done that better before. Have I? I? I didn't have quite enough ham on it this time. No. I'll ham it up better <laughs> next week, I promise. Suggestions for the show uh, also uh, let us know. And thanks to the Hockey Shop, source for sports in Surrey, thehockeyshop.com. If you want to thank us, send us an email, let us know what you think, or just go out and visit the Hockey Shop or thehockeyshop.com, source for sports in Surrey. Uh, I, I love keeping track of, uh, of what they're doing by the hockeyshop.com website. That's the way I interact with them. Great equipment reviews are there and waiting for you on the various 2019 lines. Uh, until next week, be confident, be strong, and be great. Our thanks to Clint Malarczyk, uh, Thomas Grice, and Sergei Bobrovsky, as well as Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison. I'm Darren Millard. Have a good one.